You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Um, Psalm 34, verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. O magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Now, listen to this verse because it taps into what we've been sort of thinking through over the past few weeks about this theme throughout the Psalms. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man, the person who takes refuge in him. And then what's the response? Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. Little lions, they can suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and who loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all of their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. This is a psalm that takes you all over the place. (laughs) I mean, you're forced to move, and to move in ways that leave you with a little bit of whiplash. So before we dive in, kind of bit by bit, stanza by stanza, that's going to be our approach this morning, let me make a few introductory comments about this psalm. The first thing that I want to make an introductory comment about is is the title. Now you notice this um, is the smaller font, italicized part, at the beginning of the psalm, that's not a part of the verse structure in Psalm 34. It's, it's given a kind of title. Um, as an aside, you might find this interesting. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Hebrew canon, these titles that you're reading, um, they're, they're actually verse 1 of the psalms. Now, that's, we can talk about this a little bit. Um, so verse 1 in the Hebrew canon says this. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Now, I want to read that story to you in a second because it is wild. Um, But this is an interesting feature of the Psalms that you find uh, sort of buried here and there, where the Psalms will give you a context, a historical context by which to read this Psalm. So, for example, Psalm 51, which is a psalm, a penitential psalm. Most of us are familiar with that. Have mercy upon me, O God. Forgive me. Wash me thoroughly. 
Um, we use this psalm in our liturgy week in and week out. Open our lips and our mouth will show forth your praise. So Psalm 51 is a psalm that many of us know as a psalm of confession, a psalm of penitence, a psalm of forgiveness, a psalm of renewal. Well, guess what verse 1 is in Psalm 51 in the Hebrew canon? A psalm that David wrote after he had sinned with Bathsheba. Right, so you've got a context in which to read that. Um, now, the history of these psalm titles is a, is a seminary class unto itself. Fascinating stuff. Because, you might be interested to know this, when you move to the Greek translation of the Hebrew canon, there, there are more psalm titles in the Greek translation than there are in the Hebrew canon. In other words, what you're seeing here is a tradition that's kind of alive and bubbling within ancient Israel, even into the Second Temple period, where there was an instinct to find other texts by which to read these psalms so that they can get a little bit more concrete, um, to give you a framework within which to read them. I should quickly say, not to limit the psalm to that moment, but again, to give you a kind of frame of understanding. So with that said, let me read to you um, 1 Samuel 21 and the story that uh, the psalmist links Psalm 21 and Psalm 34 um, to this story with David, which is wild. David rose and he fled that day from Saul. So this is, this is pre-enthronement um, uh, David. This is David on the run from Saul David. This is David dwelling in caves. What am I, what's that? 1 Samuel 21, verse 10. And David rose and he fled that day from Saul and he went to Achish, the king of Gath. And you know that Gath is in that sort of southwest area. Think the Gaza Strip, actually, that area. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, so this is the Philistines here, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another hymn and dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. So you get what's going on here? Here's David in the land of Philistia. These are the enemies of the people of God. And the servants say to the king, Isn't this guy who's in our midst right now the one that they, song, they sang these war songs about him back in the land of Judah? Well, what was the war song? Saul struck down his thousands, David his ten thousands. So, in other words, this is, uh, uh, maybe in our, our terms, this is someone that's got a biker jacket on. Uh, he's a warrior. Um, he's, he's someone who's known as someone who's ready to go into a fight, which can sometimes light a fire in other people to say, well, if he's that strong, then let's just put that to the test. That's what David thinks is going to go on. In other words, they're talking about me with this song that I was never really a big fan of. I've ki killed my ten thousands. That's not good for me to have that reputation here among a group of people that might want to prove right now that that song is not true. So what does David do? You've got to love this. He took these words to heart. He was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath, because he knew that this was now a challenge to him and his own authority and power. So what did David do? He went berserk. He changed his behavior before them, and he pretended to be insane in their hands. And watch this here. Made marks on the doors of the gate. So he made a, you know, scratching in front of them. He let the spittle run down on his beard. I mean, this is the moment when you're at the dinner party and you begin to leave. Right? I think I'll leave now. <laughs> then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man. 
is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen? It's a great response. Do I lack madmen that you've brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Question mark. And then he leaves. Now, that's a story that most of us are familiar with. The next bit is a fascinating frame as well by which to read Psalm 34. So David departed from the land of Philistia. He escaped to the cave of Adulam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Who went down there to the caves of Adulam to hang out with David, who eventually became his mighty warriors? These people. Everyone who was in distress. Everyone who was in debt. Everyone who was bitter in soul. Those are the people that gathered to David. And he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. In other words, it was the discontents, the malcontents of society that on the outskirts, on the edges. There's so much here to talk about Jesus' typology as well. And the way which Jesus was drawn to those on the sort of outer uh, margins of, of acceptable society. Jesus was drawn to them, and those people were drawn to King David as well. Remarkable. In the case of Ajalam. Here they go. So when you think about the pairing of this story about King David um, acting like a madman, and in the act of his madman state, the Lord delivered him. And then he finds himself safe in a cave in Adjalam, apparently writing this psalm or composing it in his mind. There he is, and all of these malcontents and discontents find themselves with David in this cave, and here's Psalm 34. So can you look at Psalm 34, just the bits of it one more time? I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. I sought the Lord, verse 4, and he answered me, and he delivered me from all of my fears. We see that David was fearful of the king of Philistia. And look at, and if we have time, we'll kind of turn to this again. But look at the shift that happens at verse 11. Come, O children, and listen to me. So what you have here is King David makes a shift from his own praise and thanksgiving to the Lord for his deliverance, and he turns his posture to now that of a teacher. I want to, ch- I want to share with you all, and again, if we're letting the mirror of the cave experience in Ajalam at least be part of what the psalm is about, here David is turning to the discontents and the malcontents and saying, listen, let me teach you something now, those of you who are joining yourself to me. I'm going to instruct you. And this is the way in which I'm going to instruct you. I'm going to teach you to fear the Lord. Now, that's an interesting turn of phrase. To fear the Lord, another way of saying this would be to worship the Lord, to order one's entire existence to the Lord and His will and His calling and His being in relationship to my existence. I'm going to teach you that your turning toward the Lord in fear and worship frames and shapes everything that you're about to do and you're adjoining yourself to me as your king and then he goes through the the litany after this as well teaching them more about fear and worship and what it means to be righteous what it means to follow in the ways of the lord and you find david becoming the teacher again that that that, i'm i'm clearing my throat here all right but this is fascinating to me to think about this psalm and the kinds of people 
the kinds of people that frankly are frustrating, I don't know how to say it, frustrating to be around. We all know them. Maybe you are one of them. Maybe I am, right? Um, and they're the discontent people. They've always got something to complain about, just can't quite get it together. And here is David saying, okay, you all are with me. You're my kind of people. We're on the, we're on the, we're on the outskirts together. And now I want to teach you. And the shape and the frame and the content, the substance of my teaching is that you enter into the fear of the Lord because of the fact that he is our deliverer and our sustainer. That shapes and frames everything. All right. um, one other throat clearing matter. Psalm 34 is also an acrostic, which is interesting, I think. Um, we've seen this before. Um, in, uh, in Psalms where you'll have a Psalms built off an acrostic pattern. So I'll just put it in English, but you basically have Psalm 1 verse 1 begins with A and Psalm 1 verse 2 begins with B and you have A, B, C all the way down in this kind of nice poetic frame. Now, I've mentioned this before in other classes, Psalm 119, that large psalm that you start reading maybe like the first 10 verses and then you bail that one. Um, psalm 119 is also an acrostic in the, in the sense of its stanzas. A to Z, or in Hebrew, Aleph to Tav, from the beginning to the end. So I think there's actually something about the form of the psalm itself that helps us understand something about the substance of what David is wishing to communicate in this psalm. Namely, I'm giving you something that can be an A to Z of your existence, an Aleph to Tav. If you enter into this psalm, you will enter into what life in its fullness, actually is meant to be for you in this world and in the world to come. In other words, the the form of the psalm is a kind of, hey, perk your ears up and and tune into this because this psalm is a psalm that's meant to shape, shape and frame an entire existence of what it means to live, and I'm going to steal from the psalmist here, in the radiance of the Lord. What does it mean to live in the smile of God's face on my life? How do I enter into that mode of being? Knowing that we have a tendency to move in all kinds of different directions, just like King David did. That's another part that I think, at least for me, that I find encouraging about reading these Psalms in light of the person and the narrative of King David. Um, King David is a problem. Um, He rarely stays on track. But what you find in the Psalms and in David's own life is this, well, still Advent language here, this life of repentance that turns itself again and again on the far side of my struggle, my adversity, my sin, that I'm turning again and again to that which is true and ultimate and real, namely the Lord and the Lord alone. So this is Psalm 34, an acrostic, an A to Z. And the psalmist is saying, David is saying here, if you take heed, if you listen, I'm providing for you a pattern of existence that's the A to Z of the whole thing. So can we look at some of these uh, together and we'll see. Well, we've got five minutes. Why, why not? Ten? Twenty? Then never trust David Tanner on time. I'll say that. Okay, okay. All right, all right. All right, so verses one through three. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Now, again, if we're thinking about this in terms of the A to Z of existence, I will bless the Lord. His praise will continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Um, Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. 
at all times. I've mentioned this to you before, but might as well say it again. It's interesting phenomenon in both the Old and the New Testaments that gratitude, thanksgiving, is the opposite of idolatry. And as when you think about these things on a pole or some sort of continuum, gratitude and idolatry cannot coexist. They're not happy partners, the one with the other. Um, idolatry is a tendency, think about Martin Luther's famous definition of both um, what it means to believe in God and to believe in an idol. They're both the same thing. What do I put my faith and my confidence and my trust and my hope ultimately in? Because that definition provides for you what both God is and an idol. And gratitude, a posture of gratitude and thanksgiving, what we just did together at the Eucharistic table, an act of thanksgiving, is an ordering of ourselves in a recognition that everything that we have, the sum total of our being, every hope that we can have for the future rests completely and solely on the Lord, revealed to us in Jesus by the effective power of the Holy Spirit. Without that, we have nothing to rely on. So this is, and if you'll see here as well, gratitude and humility, non-idolatry, these are all wrapped up in the same frame of discourse. What does it mean to be thankful? To be thankful means that I can't be idolatrous because my posture and my gaze is not turned inward when I'm thankful. Think about that. The, the idolatrous, and we, we know it, we struggle with it all the time, right? When we take even the good things that God gives us, and we turn them into ultimate ends. Like this good thing can become the ultimate thing. And in that ordering of our loves, that the ordering of our desires that I think Christians struggle with to the day they breathe their last. When I take good things and I make them ultimate things, that struggle there is a struggle of going inward and forcing us to once again turn outward. It's, again, it's why we come to worship. At least we need to come together to worship corporately together every week. Because this is the place together where the language and the discourse and the hearing of the word and the celebrating of the sacrament shapes and frames us once again outside of ourselves. Pushes us outside. Recognizing that my safety, my righteousness, my hope, my joy, my deliverance through the turbulence of this world is safely in the hands of someone else. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and we encapsulate that with, and I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And when we say those things together again and again and again, hopefully by God's Spirit, those things are permeating our lives so that we can say, not only am I saying those things, I believe they're true, and I rest everything on it. Faith in, what, in, in an object makes both God and an idol. And here you have the psalmist in these first three verses telling us that I bless the Lord continually. Now, of course, we know we, you've read the Samuel narratives. You, you know David wasn't blessing the Lord continually. And this, this is the beauty, again, of reading these things in light of the reality of a human life that's fallen. The call to bless the Lord continually is a call to a mode of being and a mode of existence that we have to be drawn into again and again and again. Bless the Lord continually. His praise will be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. And then this, these verses here, this, this line, let the humble hear and be glad. True humility 
is found in the rejoicing and the celebration of what God has done for us in Jesus. If you read enough of Paul, the Apostle Paul, especially in his letters to the Corinthians, it's as if Paul can't even make a theological statement or an argument without leaning heavily into this dynamic right here. After his 1 Corinthians chapter 1, after Paul announces the foolishness of preaching that's linked to the cross, that's linked to the wisdom of God uh, turning over the wisdom of this world. God's foolishness is real true wisdom. Human wisdom is foolishness. So he's playing with all of these terms here. And at the end, what does Paul say? If I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians chapters 10, 11, 12, where you get into Paul defending himself apostolically. They're embarrassing chapters to read. They're chapters that you can tell that the Apostle Paul himself is blushing as he's writing these chapters. Okay, my opponents out there are telling you that I'm not truly an apostle. They're calling into question my apostolic CV or resume. So I'm going to go ahead and pull out my resume for you here in these chapters. That's what you're reading in the latter part of 2 Corinthians to let you know that I'm a true apostle. And what does he begin to do? He begins to give a litany of his sufferings. This is what Paul says, I'm going to prove to you my apostleship by my scars. I'm going to kind of let down my toga a little bit. You see my back. I got beat a few times. I was shipwrecked. Even got bit by a snake on an island when we were shipwrecked. And at the end of all of this, what the Apostle Paul says is, I'm proving to you my apostleship because if I'm going to boast in anything, it's not my resume or my CV. I'm going to boast in the Lord. Um, That's true humility. It's not sort of false meekness. It's not a personality type. Um, True humility is a humility that sees fullness, completeness, joy, capacity, all in the safe hands of another and is quick to point to that end away from the self. That's why I think, you know, one of my favorite theologians, you all know this, Karl Barth. I mean, he kept just a few pictures hanging in his office there in, in Basel, Switzerland. One was of Mozart. He had a kind of an inordinate interest in Mozart, frankly. Mozart, John Calvin. That's okay. It's good. Um, and this famous altarpiece from Eisenheim by an artist named... Uh, 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 oh, Brunewald, yes, um, of John the Baptist with his crooked pointed finger pointing away to Jesus hanging on a cross and all of the ugly beauty of the gospel. And th- this is what Bart understand what being a Christian to be. To be a Christian is to be a witness, to bear witness to something beyond ourselves. We're not pointing to ourselves or pointing to someone else. John the Baptist, are you the one to come? No, I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. I'm just a finger pointing to that one on the cross. And all of us are called into that existence. And the psalmist says here, when we're blessing him continually, when we're praising him, when we're pointing away from ourselves to him and his glory, his effulgence, not our own, then we are experiencing true humility that comes because of what he's done and not some achievement that we've made on our own. So, those are the first three verses. True humility boasts in the Lord. And then he turns from this, and he gives the reasons for why he's rejoicing. Why would the psalmist, why would David rejoice? Well, here he gives you his, his narrative. I sought the Lord, and he answered me. 
I'm blessing the Lord all the time. I'm, I'm praising Him continually. I'm magnifying the Lord. I'm exalting His name with you, all of you. Why? Because I sought Him and He answered me. And He delivered me from all my fears. Do you see the language there and the progression? I sought, He answered, He delivered from all of my fears. And by the way, this term fear here is a different word for fear than when you find the word, the fear of the Lord. This term for fear here is an object of dread and horror. Now, of course, we know that the scene for David back in 1 Samuel 21 was the dread that he felt in the face of the king of Philistia, who was probably about to have it out with him if he really was this guy that killed uh, Goliath that we've heard about. That was his immediate fear, the object of his horror. But it is an open checkbook for all of us to fill in. What is the object of your horror and your dread? The thing that keeps you up at night. That thing right there, the psalmist is saying, I sought the Lord. He answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. And then notice the response again from the psalmist in verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant their faces shall never be ashamed. Those who look to him are radiant. This is the language of glory. We, we heard the text. I didn't even know it was the text read today and that Doug preached on so beautifully in, in the reading in Corinthians this morning about the weight of glory that weighs on those who link themselves to the sufferings of Jesus. A weight of glory. Um, here uh, you have the psalmist speaking about radiance which I think is the, 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 the metaphor is meant to suggest the complete transformation of the whole person. Radiance. Um, glory, by the way, in the Hebrew is a term that means weightiness. You feel the sort of weight of the otherness of God. That's not a bad weight. It's the kind of weight that we want to be under. I think this is where you see um, Jesus saying, my burden is light. I mean, to be near Jesus, to be near Christ, to be in Christ looking toward God is to be in the place where ultimate warmth and radiance and health and light is, bears down on us. This is the fulfillment of the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and grant you his peace. This is the smiling face of God on his people. Those who look to the Lord enter into his radiance. And by the way, this is a picture I believe of moments in our life now. I think we get these moments. Um, they're God's kindness to us, where, if I can steal from Timothy George, Dr. George would often speak about the thin places that happen every once in a while, where, and he stole this from the Celts, but um, where heaven and earth and your experience of the divine is such that you're not quite sure where you are right now. And I think we've all had those moments, whether it's in church together singing or whether it's some song on the radio or whether it's your private time with the Lord or whether it's well, wherever it is, those moments that God gives you a taste of his radiance and his glory, where the truth of what God has done for you in Jesus weighs on you in a way that leaves you feeling overwhelmed in the joy of what he's done for you. Um, and, th and those aren't, that's not every moment. I wish it was, you know, um, it, but it's not. We, we, we go to school and we have to go to work and we balance a checkbook. 
know that dated me. Um, but you, you, we, we do those lifey things. You know, I was sitting out yesterday with my neighbor who was teaching his son and my son as well how to how to change a spare tire when you, you know when the moment comes. So not even a flat tire, just the boys jacking up the car and taking off the nuts and like yeah, do this, do this. I mean, so we we live we're not always living in the radiance of his effulgence. Right? I'm, I'm realistic about that. But those moments that he gives us, those moments of transcendence in this world that are marked by the gospel in Jesus, testify to us, are you ready for this? Of what eternity will be like. Of what heaven is like in every moment. And by the way, not as something static. Not as a kind of, boy, I'm living into the effulgence, but a growth and a development into eternity of the radiance of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Um, some of these old dead theologians could get this. I think maybe because they were riding out in horses, you know, and all by themselves a lot, and not as many distractions as we have. But, I mean, you read, for example, like David Brainerd's journal. Didn't you read David Brainerd's journal? I mean, David Brainerd, father of the kind of missionary movement, really, in the, in the English-speaking world, um, died of tuberculosis, wanted to be a missionary to the Indians in the, in the 18th century. He, he was a, a, a peer of Jonathan Edwards. Contracted tuberculosis. Jonathan Edwards' daughter, who there was some sort of romance between the two of them, she ministered to Brainerd with this tuberculosis. He died. She contracted it. She died. They're both buried together underneath a tree in Northampton, Massachusetts. I mean, this stuff is like a Hallmark movie um, for Christians, I guess. I don't know. No, this is powerful, powerful stuff. You read Brainerd's journal or, or, or Jonathan Edwards' journal or George Whitfield's journal, and, and it's like these, these figures from the past, you could just sense that there were moments when they were overwhelmed by the otherness and the beauty and the transcendence of God revealed in the glory of Jesus Christ. But this is what I love about reading these old journals. But you flip the page, and David Brainerd would say things like, in the ultimate depths of despair today, discouraged, seem to be falling at every corner, can't keep up with my thoughts, yada, yada, yada. Uh, two days later, overwhelmed by the beauty and the glory of Jesus. I mean, in a way that you might read it and say, are they bipolar? But, but, but I think you would read it and say, no, they're Christians. They're struggling along the way, living into the fullness of it, wanting to live into Psalm 34, knowing that God in His grace gives us those moments. But those moments testify to what life on the far side of the resurrection of the dead will be. It's going to be beautiful, transcendent, other music. I sought the Lord, He answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant. Their faces, they'll never be ashamed. The poor, they cry out. God answers them, saves them. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him. And I'll, I'll land the plane with just verses 8, 8, 9, and 10. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Um, it's almost surprising, actually, that the psalmist uses this kind of um, in, empirical language, uh, tasting and seeing. Um, it's, it's as if the psalmist is, is stretching for language to describe a fully human experience that's not merely intellectual. It's not just the transference of facts. It's the transference of Facts and affection 
and will, emotion, all of these things coming together. And the, and the metaphors that he uses are tasting and seeing that the Lord is good. I taste it and I see it. It's, it's outside of me. I can see it, but I'm also ingesting it and it's entering into the very core of my being. And then what's the response? The response is when you taste and see that the Lord is good, you fear his name. You worship him. You enter into that again and again. Verse 10, the young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. It's as if the psalmist is saying, again, as we find elsewhere in the Psalms and throughout the scriptures, that the way of the Lord is better. And I, I feel this because we, this whole sort of gratitude being the opposite of idolatry, our restlessness inside of us, and I'm using existential language there intentionally, our restlessness for something to satisfy, to satiate this thing, is an indication for us of how we've been made to desire the ultimate good. And here the psalmist is saying, I know our tendency, I'm quoting Lewis here, but you know, to go and play with the mud, uh, mud pies, you know, a little pond in the backyard. When God has offered us the ocean, seaside escape in his son. So our tendency is always to make mud pies. And I think we'll still struggle making mud pies until we breathe our last. But the psalmist is presenting for you the ultimate good of where ordered desires are actually met in the beauty and the goodness of the Lord. Um, I wanted to say a few other things. Can I read you two quotes and then I'll let you go? This is from... James Smith, a little book on St. Augustine. And if, for those of you who've read Augustine before, you'll know that a lot of what I said today is stolen from him. L listen to what St. Augustine said. Oh, the twisted roads that I walked. But look, you're here freeing us from our unhappy wandering, setting us firmly on your track, comforting us and saying, run the race. I'll carry you. I'll carry you clear to the end. And even at the end, I'll carry you. And this is how um, James Smith sort of finishes his reflection on what St. Augustine understands as our life along the way. And he quotes here a French philosopher. French philosopher Jean-Luc Marion points out, this is interesting, track with me here, conversion doesn't solve temptation. <laughs> Rather, it heightens temptation. Because conversion creates resistance. In some sense, the tension of time is experienced more intensely by the soul that is on its way home. This is why when the Genelette family travels to Michigan and back way up to Traverse City, for whatever reason, the two and a half hours from Nashville to Birmingham are the longest of the trip. Right? That's when profanity starts. Nashville to Birmingham, kids start getting cussed at. That's when it happens, right? <laughs> so in some sense, the tension of time is experienced more intensely by the soul that is on its way home. In conversion, I find myself. You hear that? I find my true self when I'm converted. I'm pulled together from the liquefaction of disordered loves and distractions that dissolved me. But conversion introduces a new kind of tension in my experience resistance of what I have become to what I used to be. So here's the tension. When you've turned to the Lord and you know His radiance, 
But the challenge of life to the end is a resistance of what I've become, who I know I am in Christ, to what I used to be. Even if, he says, by grace, I find a wholeness, find myself, the experience of conversion, a reordering, a reorienting, renders me different from myself. Coming to myself, this is all Augustine's language, coming to my true self isn't an escape. Instead, it makes the struggle more quotidian or more every day. Every day I'm haunted. Selfhood is an ordeal not just before conversion, I love this turn of phrase, but because of conversion. It is the converted, baptized, ordained St. Augustine who confesses, I am a burden to myself. Isn't that interesting? And, this, and, and you know enough about King David to know he was a burden to himself as well. And yet it was that same King David, like St. Augustine, like Luther, like you and me here, who knows that in the burden that I am to my own self, that in this world, God, by His grace, draws us back in to bless the Lord continually, to have our way reoriented to Him again, knowing that when those moments occur on our way to our final destination, that it's Him carrying us in that moment as well. We're not doing it. He's doing it then, and He'll do it at the end. Bless the Lord. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed are those who take refuge in Him. Father, seal these things, we pray, into our hearts. And we're all along the way. We all know, Lord, the pit and the hollowness in our own hearts when we've walked away from our idols one more time. And here you draw us in Psalm 34 to where real humanity is to be found in rejoicing and delighting in You. Help us, O Lord, to enter into it and to taste and to see that you are good, to bless your name continually, and to live into what you have done for us in Jesus, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.